Welcome to Encounter. I'm Ed Kessler, and this week we're talking about fundamentalism. How do fundamentalist ideas and behaviours function? And how do we distinguish between fundamentalism, extremism, radicalism and orthodoxy? This week I have with me the Wolf Institute's own Tobias Muller, a PhD student specialising in Muslim governance in contemporary European societies, and Professor Kim Knott from Lancaster University, who leads a programme of research in the Centre for Research and Evidence on Security Threats. Welcome. And of course, our own David Perry. David. Kim, could I ask you about the nature of the work you do? Because you get your funding from a slightly unusual source and you're a religious history academic. It's a slightly strange mixture. Yeah, well, it, it's... It may seem strange, but actually uh, my foundations as scholar of religions really were in working at, uh, very much with community organisations and with external bodies. So doing academic work, but engaged with broader publics. And from there, I've gone on to working with a range of different kind of practitioners. And so I always had in my mind that I would like to work specifically with people who do things. And the opportunity came along for us to bid to be a centre for research and evidence on security threats. And I had been working in that kind of field with a colleague for some years, thinking about security problems of one kind or another. So I'm the de deputy director of that centre now, but also I run this programme within it on ideas, beliefs and values in social context. What it's really about is helping security practitioners to understand religions better, to understand ideologies, so those might be political as well as religious, to understand how that engages with their own work. The funders are the security and intelligence agencies and the nature of their work is that they engage with national security in one form or another, wider international security questions, um, and helping them to understand issues around ideas and beliefs and values is enormously important as it's become a significant part of their work. So it's helping in understanding, but it's helping also to pr provide tools and resources that they can use, whether that's for training or whether it's actually for the practice of the work that they do on a day-to-day -day basis. It sounds a bit parallel to what the Wolf Institute does. Mm. <laughs> Thank you, David. Um, <laughs> Let's explore the question of fundamentalism, Kim, because, you know, you talked about security services mm. and concerns over terrorism, extremism, radicalism. I mean, is that what fundamentalism is? Is fundamentalism simply extremism? Well, I think I would like to distinguish the two. I think where they might come together from the perspective of wider society, religion is frequently seen as a problem, particularly as we're in a secular context where religion isn't necessarily the norm for people. Maybe they are not religious themselves, some of these practitioners. Maybe some felt that religion was something that was disappearing and becoming less relevant in contemporary society. And when religion has appeared on the agenda, it's often been in respect of very um, you know, global concerns of one kind or another, uh, whether it's in relation to issues around human rights or whether it's in relation to, to terrorism or whatever. So I think it's often been seen as a problem. So I think both fundamentalism and, and extremism may connect at that point. But I think, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, traditionally, as scholars of religion, we thought of fundamentalism as something really quite specific. Tobias, what about that question of what is fundamentalism? This is a, something that's of interest to you, the problem of the terminology and sort of unpacking the word. 
it is often conflated in the perception of the people. Like everything we don't like about religion is lumped up under the term um, of fundamentalism. And there's an issue first of the origin of the term because it um, has originated in the early 20th century in Protestant movements as a description of people themselves, like of Protestant Christians arguing against certain liberal trends in Christian theology, trying to set out and make clear what the fundamentals of Christianity are. However, this term now has been applied as well in many other contexts, as people know. And the question is then, how is it possible to have a concept that actually originated in one specific area geographically, but also one particular religion, to travel into other contexts? And I think we need to be always very wary whenever we use any concept that comes from a certain background and be aware of its history. And when we use it to other concepts, we need good reasons. I think there are good reasons. And one reason a lot of people bring up is that there is actually a common origin maybe or a common cause which is this response or resistance to something to a development that is seen as problematic very often this is termed as modernism and um, the problems that uh, arose in uh, western societies with industrialization with uh, social questions economic uh, problems but also kind of liberalism really destroying a lot of the social structures especially religion but also the family and the second way to define fundamentalism is to call it something that is connected by a set of so-called family resemblances so often people say it is radical conservatives radical because they are very much arguing against certain traditional authorities, um, but traditional because in their theology is very often they're very traditional. And then people say, well, also fundamentalists work towards an apocalyptic vision, uh, in a sense, and try to foster a self um, that is in line with uh, the precepts of religion in a very strict sense often. Would you like to have an alternative term? I know that your, your, your research <laughs> here at the Wolf Institute um, the term that we've come up with is strictly observant religious practice, or would you like an alternative term to fundamentalism? So every alternative term signifies something different. So we get a bit of a different concept, and I think it's good to have the variety of the concept. The problem with fundamentalism also is that very often it has a very negative connotation. And of course, if you talk to people and speak with them, I do research about fundamentalism, that raises serious questions. So I would never want to start with the term fundamentalism and then go into the field and work with the people, but rather say, I'm interested in a particular phenomenon. I'm interested in people who of course, take the religion very seriously, who might have very serious criticism of the society, um, who might even see themselves as kind of outside of society, and then try to understand how do they perceive themselves and maybe find a term that is not so heavily normatively loaded, but at the same time, it actually denotes something that is out there in the world, this phenomenon that I definitely see out there. And of course, that's in the public domain now, isn't it? The term fundamentalism, mm, so we might exactly. as well use it. And, and that obviously does bring us back to the connection with extremism, because maybe fundament, fundamentalism less so, but certainly extremism is a term that people use of others. I can't really imagine many groups saying, yes, we're an, we're an extremist group. Um, whereas that, that term is one that we frequently use of others. And behind that term will 
lie all sorts of normative judgments and it's very often a pejorative term and uh, trying to gain any agreement even as academics around what we might mean when we use the term extremism of a religious or political group is going to be extremely difficult and probably as with fundamentalism here I think there might be a little crossover there might be certain kinds of beliefs and practices that we kind of cluster together that might commonly be labelled perhaps as extremist by others. But when people are using that term, by and large what they're saying is this is not in the mainstream, it's not moderate, it's not liberal secularist, it's not modern. And so it, these have become ways of describing outsiders or they might even be mechanisms for marginalising those outsiders. Um, so that's part of the difficulty with the term like extremism. I'd like to add on the relation between extremism and fundamentalism that extremism is a term that is very potent and important in the policy world and for policymakers and practitioners because extremism, as defined, for instance, by the Counterterrorism Act and by the Prevent Strategy and so on, does have effects in people's lives because people are obliged legally, if they work in the public sector, to signal whenever there are, whenever they encounter any signs of radicalization and so on. So it's not just an academic concept or something we use in the public sphere, but it's really impacting people's lives. And many of the people I talked to said that they're now very aware and very uh, cautious of um, speaking because they might be identified in one way or another as extremists. So it's rather than only an academic concept really affecting people's lives. Is it worth talking about different groups who might be in that group of fundamentalists? Quiet, pious people who don't want to engage much. Persuading, who want to proselytise and perhaps convert. And sort of coercive, people who want to change everything and perhaps would resort to violence. Would you accept, Kim, would you accept those categories? I, I think they're very useful and interesting um, categories I suppose a question I'd ask about them is, can a group move between those categories? So can you start off as a quietist group, but then if you're marginalised, say, socially, if the media has a go at you, might you end up, you know, in one of the other categories? Might you end up in that third category as a more uh, radical, more coercive type of movement? So Om Shinrikyo, for example. Who are they? Uh, that's a Japanese uh, new religion. It was founded in the 1980s as a sort of meditation yoga group led by a guy called Asahara. So he was the founder and principal leader. Uh, but this was the group in March 1995 that attacked the Tokyo subway with sarin gas. Um, but that's a group that very much started as a sort of quietist group. But because of... Uh, both the sort of internal dynamics of their beliefs and practices and the pressures that they experienced from the media and external society. They tried to participate in some political elections in which they were very unsuccessful, for example. They became more and more withdrawn. And actually, as we know, they must have become more and more radicalised, if we want to use that term in that context. It wouldn't have been a term that they would have used. More isolated... Uh, more coercive internally, very austere religious practices, tolerating and submitting to really quite violent, even torture practices. 
So that was a group that seemed to move from one of those categories to another. So I think there's an issue about the dynamics as well as the individual categories. But of course, the fluidity of group movement is typical not just of religious groups, but of any group, doesn't Absolutely. it? You know, political ideologies, mm -hmm. the religious domain, secular domain, and so on. So I wonder whether the movement, I can see how it concerns the practitioners, but they're quite, the categories can be helpful because in the public mind, when we use the term fundamentalist, we tend to think about the loudest, the You're shrillest, right. the most extreme. Uh, and actually, the majority of, and let's use the term fundamentalist, the majority of fundamentalists don't fall into that category. They fall, I think, actually into the first or second categories. And if that's where the growth of fundamentalism is through dem demography and large families, and we see that in certainly in the Jewish community and, and other communities as well, then the practitioners need to take seriously the nuances and those differences. I agree, and I think they're keen to do that. So I think, you know, there really is an appetite to understand, well, what is the difference between all those people who might actually subscribe to what we might think of as uh, conservative religious beliefs or engage in practices that uh, maybe liberal secular people wouldn't engage in to understand those and to know that they may share quite a lot with people who might actually be willing to condone violence but to understand why many don't engage in such activities and some do. Tobias, what, what makes fundamentalism attractive? Because you know this is an area I know of interest to you. So I think it's very important to understand all sorts of fundamentalism, not only from a it's a coercive or an ideology that suppresses people and comes from outside to the poor victim individuals. I think there is, in many regards, much more agency to adhering to fundamentalism than often we concede. So I think one thing, especially in young people, that we often tend to ignore is these people want to change the world. And they want to change the world for the better. And they see their responsibility not only often in the very small community that they've grown up in, that they live in, but they do look out into the world. And they see injustice in the world. They see suffering in the world. And often our, our attention that we have in society is often directed towards certain kinds of suffering, but often neglecting a lot of others. So I think very often once you start identifying yourself with your co-religionists somewhere across the globe and see what they're suffering, people have the feeling we need to really need to do something. And who is actually offering solutions to that? And very often uh, foreign policy, especially from uh, this country, but also other Western countries, is seen as very detrimental to the plights of these people. So who is offering a solution of how I, as a young human being who wants to change the world, actually can do something and be important. When you say Western countries in other parts of the world, let's name names. Are you specifically talking about sort of Western colonialism and Muslim communities that feel that this is a sort of Judeo-Christian assault or what? Just unpack what, what you mean by that. Very often when I'm speaking about fundamentalism, it is about uh, the... Islamic hate context, because that's where my area of research is, but obviously that might be very different in other contexts. So I think, as you mentioned, political Islam cannot be understood without the history of colonialism and the failure of pan-Arabism, for instance, as an identity movement in the Middle East and how nation states were created in the Middle East. And these solutions all failed. So um, I think it was Nigeria with the... Um, um, Islamic Salvation Front, that the first time actually a political alternative was offered, also in Iran, obviously, that 
was drawing on Islam particularly. And I think that was very important for the development of this identity. Islam is the solution, which a lot of people in the 60s said actually was not the case. And obviously, as you might imagine, US foreign policy in particular, but also um, British and French NATO foreign policy often has been seen as very detrimental to the fate of these uh, people in these countries. You talked about um, these groups criticizing the West, probably quite rightly. And that sort of implies that they're sort of outside and, and in some sense they want to engage, but they don't want to engage. And you, Kim, talked about people being marginalised and vilified and pushed into a corner. Well, we've got a sort of conundrum here, haven't we? If, if they're not wanting to engage mm -hmm. and they're being vilified by the press, how, how do we get out of that um, difficulty? I think it is a genuine difficulty. And um, I think, you know, we do have to make room for... Uh, as a society for religious movements that you know want to experiment outside the confines as they would see it of the a kind of mainstream society there's always been room for that kind of experimentation and maybe we're more tolerant of some ways of uh, exploiting that opportunity than we are of others and we're certainly wary as a society i think of groups that want to be outside we can learn a lot, actually, if we look at those groups that want to be outside about ourselves. So there's actually something really to be gained from not just engaging, which we really must do, I think, but also from actually learning about, you know, what such groups value, um, what beliefs they hold about mainstream society, as well as what they are themselves doing. Uh, because I think we can learn a lot about what is valuable about mainstream society, but also what might be a constraint and a problem. The question of engagement I found really interesting because coming from Germany when I started doing research in the UK actually, I was wondering what, what does engagement actually mean? It seems <laughs> to be kind of a word that encompasses a lot of different things. So everybody thinks somehow engagement is good and non-engagement is bad. And I, it took me some time actually to unpack what that means and I found that very often groups don't have the capacity or don't have the language to engage with local and central government. They don't use the same words, the same lingo, the same terms, um, but also they don't often don't know the, the channels or the persons that they would need to talk to, and often they just simply don't have the resources. So one group I've been talking to, uh, they said, well, either we respond to the media because they do a lot of problematic things, or we talk to local council, or we talk to the Muslim women that we do work with. So we really have to divide up our, our resources. And I think when we ask for engagement, often we do not properly take into account that a lot of that work is done voluntarily. It's a completely different structure often than, say, the capacities that the Christian churches have. And then, of course, they're also expected to do interfaith work and de-radicalization work and all these kind of things. And so I think we need to be careful what kind of engagement are we asking for and are we actually offering paths of engagement that are intelligible and legible for these people and that fits to the resources that they have. So in a way you've got the problem of resource, the lack of numbers and, and also learning the language of the different partners that as fundamentalists I need to know what language is used by the local councils, what language is used by another faith community. But at the same time I think Kim's point is that the practitioners often don't have the language to engage with fundamentalists. Absolutely. Um, so there's, there's a chasm there. Um, and actually, these are not really new problems. Um, so I think that's one thing that's quite important to realise. You know, I started working 
on and with minority communities in Leeds very early in my research career. And the same kind of issues were there, you know, the same kind of issues about how could local government officers engage with minority communities. And then on the other side, from the point of view of the communities themselves, who among their number should engage. So that issue about representation and engaged citizenship has been there all the while we've had minorities, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, and so on. If it has been like that for the last 30 or 40 years, what's new? What has changed? Because something has changed in the public discourse. Is it simply securitization? Is it the sense of otherness? What, what's changed? Because there is something in the public space that's changed in attitudes towards fundamentalists. I think, yeah, the demographics have changed. The politics have changed. So, as you mentioned the word securitization, I think that's definitely part of the picture. But it's part of a broader set of issues around modernity and the kind of challenges that we face, uh, let's say, around, you know, issues around migration, how to enable new citizens to be part of society without actually putting the onus entirely on them. And, you know, one of the models for doing that has been through securitising them, sad to say. But I think the demographics, too, have been part of the picture because that has provided what is largely a negative media with the kind of ammunition it needs to create a situation of fear in a wider population about new minority groups. Well, thank you. That's a good moment, I think, to end part one. You're listening to Encounter, a podcast from the Wolf Institute. If you like what you're hearing, check out our other podcast, An A to Z of Believing, available on all podcast platforms and at wolfpods.wordpress.com. Welcome back. Tobias, we ended part one with this question about modernity and responses to modernity. And of course, your own research has looked at questions of gender. And, and there's a, a topic that I think is worth exploring. Tell us a bit about that. So one very important work on fundamentalism, actually, is Martin Rieserbrod's fundamentalism as patriarchal movement. And he has looked actually as at these early Protestant groups in the United States in the early 20th century and compared them to Shia clergy in Iran and the lead up and the politicization of that group. And one thing that he identified was that patriarchy does play a fundamental role. So justified in different theological terms, of course, but the idea that men are somehow um, heading over women in, in one way or another. And often has been said that this is an important structural feature of every fundamentalist group. And I think it's an important entry point to understand the dynamics and also important to understand, again, this reaction against a society where gender roles are diversifying, where women have a much stronger um, standing and say in society and in influential positions than it was um, a couple of decades ago. At the same time, recent work, for instance, by Sabah Mahmoud, who has looked in at Egypt as like very pious uh, women in the Islamist uh, revivalism, has pointed out that actually women often have a very important part in these movements and often they are the ones that are in charge of education, they are in charge of uh, the family and these are absolutely crucial elements within these strictly observant groups. So I think there is a change in the role that women have in these movements and how they shape the movements internally, how also structures of um, decision making and the importance of 
who defines what our proper reaction to the outside world, but also the interpretation of scriptures is. So I think we need to pay much more attention in how these um, roles are actually changing um, as well. And can you give us an example, a practical example of those changes? One example is in Pentecostal churches. The idea very often in the beginning you had the man who is the, the pastor and the priest and the person praying. But I've been witnessing some formations where actually often the wife of the pastor um, takes on equally important role and organizing uh, large parts of uh, the group of the movement. And there's a real sharing of responsibilities up to the point where the woman is kind of taking up uh, leadership in the congregation that definitely is on par with the um, leadership that men take. And I think we shouldn't underestimate also the empowerment that can lie in a clear role description that is being given um, within these groups. But if I may, I think this is illustrative of a key difficulty that we have within the contemporary academy, if you like, within the higher education world, which is how we think about these kind of gender issues. So on the one hand, yes, we want to stress that agency and we want to uh, help people to understand that in, say, these strictly observant religious groups, that women can take on these roles, that it's not all about patriarchal oppression and so on. But at the other side, we have people who are really arguing about female genital mutilation and wanting to perhaps understandably to step in to say that, you know, here is a situation in which young women are very much under the control not just of patriarchal figures, but maybe women as well, but that, you know, these gender issues are quite complex, multifaceted, and it's not simply a question of either oppression across the board or neither is it unfettered agency where women can just do whatever they like, they can have the same roles as men and so on. So I think we have to be a bit careful, a bit cautious about how we approach those kind of issues. I don't have any particular way of resolving that, but I, I think... It is a tension. And I suppose what you're also illustrating is a diversity yeah. within the roles of gender issues, but within the fundamentalist groups as well, because we can assume that they are all the same. Yeah. I mean, you think, think about the Church of, the, of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints in the States, you know, where you've got a fundamentalist group within that broader church. Um, and you've obviously got women in not only in the broader church, but maybe even in the fundamentalist part who have quite important roles. They certainly have been very significant roles within the family, but where you know some of those women have undoubtedly been oppressed within these polygamous marriage situations and so on. So it's a it's a difficult balance to strike, I think. And, and maybe we can never please everybody all of the time in the kind of work we do on these movements. And also, I think. Patriarchy obviously does not only mean men are at the forefront. No. Um, quite the contrary, there can be a patriarchal order being upheld very strongly by women as well. We've talked a little bit just now about Christian fundamentalism as well, but Ed, we haven't heard much about the growth of ultra-Orthodox Jewish Yes, the strictly folk. observant Jews, is, it's true. And I was thinking about the diversity when you were speaking, Kim, because within the strictly Orthodox Jewish camp, you have those who hold views which are incredibly, for example, pro-Israel, sort of almost religious nationalism, as far as the land and state of Israel are concerned. And you also have those groups who are completely opposed to the state of Israel. 
because it's seen as an attempt to raise man, as it were, above God, because according to a sort of certain theology, it's God who should bring the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, not any human endeavor. So you have this incredible contradiction within ultra-Orthodox Jewish fundamentalisms. As far as numbers are concerned, the demographics show in this country that the Jewish community, which is just beginning to grow again for the first time in some decades, still less than one half of one percent of the country, but the growth comes primarily from the strictly observant Jewish communities with large families and the decline comes from mainstream Judaism, orthodoxy and uh, progressive Judaism. The figures suggest that in 25 to 30 years, the strictly orthodox Jews will almost be at parity levels with mainstream Judaism. Now that has implications for policymakers. Mm, so we're not just talking about securitization or anything, we're talking about managing communities that don't really want to integrate, that want to live their own lives as they see fit. And society has an issue there because we need to understand those beliefs and practices and rituals and customs to manage those communities and at the same time to recognize that there's a different relationship there. I think we're all agreed that we've got to address this stuff, but how optimistic are you about what's going to happen? So I am very optimistic for the possibility of local solutions. I really think it is of utmost importance to establish a strong local knowledge of how these communities and how these groups operate, where they live, where they do their groceries, where they interact with government, with social work, where they go to school. I think these are the institutions that have the best understanding of what are the things that are going on in uh, these communities and also where they do, I think, often want to engage to some to some extent and, and they do do that. And to use that as a starting point, well, there is something that we have in common. We walk the same streets and sometimes we go to Tesco's. And like on these very basic levels, I think it really makes sense to start looking what are the commonalities and the shared interest we have in security of our kids or a good education for our kids. I'm much less optimistic when it comes to the discourse at the national level. I think in many countries we've seen in Europe um, and particularly in the UK and in Germany, the rhetoric that is very critical of large parts of religious communities has been very detrimental and has been perceived very uh, negatively in these communities. And I think this is prone to cause further alienation. And it's been exploited as well by especially extreme right-wing parties. And I think the, the discourse is here at a really problematic phase. I'm also a bit anxious how further discussions around Brexit might uh, make that even stronger, that movement. Anxious, Kim? No, I'm not anxious, but that might be because I'm just a, generally a very positive person. At the local level, I, although I really take your point about local solutions, and I think the local is massively important, you know, I've been very committed to it in my own research career, but don't forget that actually there are so many historical cases of where you may have been very, very close to your neighbour, you might have had a very strong relationship with your neighbour, but neighbours can become enemies extremely quickly. Intermarriage and yeah. you know, uh, I mean, marriage or That's at the very, you know, at the micro level, but if you think about Cyprus, the history of Cyprus, for example. Bosnia. So Bosnia, people who've been close to one another can suddenly find that political circumstances, security circumstances, so on change, and life is 
literally overturned and those people who they were once close to are no longer their neighbours. That's not that I'm anxious about that, but I think we should never forget those kind of lessons from history. On the public side, you use the word discourse and I completely agree that the discourse is problematic. That's why I'm keen to work with practitioners because I think actually when it comes down to it, the people who often have to enact policy, they may not always be entirely happy with the discourse either. They're very aware of their need to understand more about the kind of communities that make up British society and to be able to differentiate between them and to understand those who might, if you like, be a problem and those who are certainly not. There are still issues around that, of course, but I think I do have hope that those kind of people who are working at the coalface of enacting British policy right across the board, not only in the security context, that, that many of them do want to have a better understanding. That, I mean, it brings us to questions about religious literacy. We've got a massive way to go, really, to help people to understand about things that they really have maybe had no education in and no, there's no reason why they should have done. The onus is upon us as scholars of religion, actually, to participate actively in that kind of programme of work. And it might make sense also for us as scholars of religion to be more attentive to the complex political processes involved. And I just recently attended a meeting with the Department of Education and there the civil servants were very aware of a lot of the also academic discourse around issues and they were thinking about how can we actually make use of this research to bring it then to the decision-making level and to actually politicians who don't know a lot about these things. So there's also often a distance between the people in the top positions in Whitehall and the other civil servants. So where is it that this knowledge um, actually can really um, take effect and thereby change the discourse not only from the top down but really from the bottom up and from the people who actually then not only implement these questions but also prepare our government apparatus as it were to engage. Mm, but at all levels is my answer to that, <laughs> at all levels. So at the local levels that you were talking about from the bottom up but also at the very top level. But I think, yeah, we as scholars of religion we've got something to contribute at all those levels. And there's a lot of work to be done. Well, Professor Kim Knott, Tobias Muller, thank you very much indeed. And to our very own David Perry. And thank you for listening to this edition of Encounter. Next time, we'll be interviewing Daniel Zeichner, the local Cambridge MP. And one of the questions I ask him is, how is he engaging with our local faith communities? No, 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 no.